Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Monday, June 5th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This week's episode is sponsored by MHC Choice, which features European mysteries, dramas, and comedies streamed right to your computer, TV, or favorite device. Try MHC Choice free for 30 days and save 50% off your first month when you visit mhcchoice.com minds and use the code minds at checkout. That's mhcchoice.com m-i-n-d-s. So I don't know if you're like me, but I'm constantly surrounded by people who would fit the definition of a nerd. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Indre. Yeah. Uh, including me. Uh, and there have definitely been situations in which I've been in a social event and felt like I have, you know, 16 elbows and 14 knees pointing in the wrong direction. Essentially felt really awkward. And there's something amazing about that feeling where you say something that you know came out not the way you intended or, you know, just was the wrong thing to say, and you feel mortified. It's a really strong emotion. Again, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Um, So maybe you're one of these people that's chronically awkward, (laughs) uh, who just doesn't notice the fact that, you know, they don't notice that they're uh, doing all these social faux pas. But, you know, we're often, I think, too quick to say, oh, well, it must be that, you know, you're on the autism spectrum if you can't have some kind of social problems. Uh, And of course, the spectrum is a continuum, right? So, you know, does it count if you just don't know exactly the right etiquette uh, when you walk into a dinner party or some other kind of social situation that you're a novice in? You know, does that you start out being kind of on the spectrum? Of course, that sounds ridiculous. And nobody would argue that that's the case. But, you know, because it's a continuum, There are some people for whom it's very difficult to learn those rules of etiquette, and it might not have anything to do with being on the spectrum. Sure. I mean, I've been a dork my whole life. Like, I say weird things at weird times. Actually, up until I was 16, I basically, I wouldn't talk. I was like so incredibly shy and awkward. I always sat in the first seat on the bus because I couldn't bear talking to other people um, for the longest time. And I'm going to out you for a second. Indre, our opera singer, incredible scientific presenter, 
also gets a bit of social anxiety from time to time. Oh, a ton of social anxiety. I mean, you know, I can I can hang, but then I af- absolutely have to take time to myself afterwards. I'm one of these people for whom social situations drain rather than give energy. I actually think like we're the majority nowadays. Like like everyone's a little bit social awkward. Yeah, so there's one individual in particular who not only is himself socially awkward and has some really great stories of growing up and trying to figure out, you know, how to navigate, say, a classroom, but also now has studied it for the majority of his career. His name is Tai Toshiro, and he's a psychologist. Uh, He's also the author of a previous book called The Science of Happily Ever After, and his current book is called Awkward, The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome. And I have to say, if you open the book and you look at his book jacket, um, he is there, you know, very handsome uh, young man, smiling and wearing a bow tie. Oh, sure. So close. I'm just sort of floored by the idea that hap- his first book, Happily Ever After, is followed up by a book on awkwardness. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So he'll be our interview for today. But with that, let's take a short break. And we'll be back with my interview with Tai Toshiro. This episode is sponsored by MHZ Choice, which features European mysteries, dramas, and comedies streamed right to your computer, TV, or favorite device. You can watch award-winning series like Almost Perfect Crimes and apparently the longest-running Swedish crime series ever, Beck, plus a bunch more. They have TV adaptations of some of the world's best crime fiction writers, including Andrea Camilleri, Henning Mankell, and Agatha Christie. New content is added each week, so you'll always have something to watch. And importantly, everything has English subtitles. I have been watching Wallander, the British one. No, not the British one, the Swedish one, the original Swedish one, which is way cooler. Uh, It's great. You can watch it on MHC Choice, like me, if you sign up. Uh, You'll get that, plus the entire MHC Choice library, which includes over 2,500 hours of binge-worthy TV, for only $7.99 a month. Try MHC Choice free for 30 days, and after that you'll save 50% off your first month. Visit mhcchoice.com minds and use the code MINDS at checkout. That's mhcchoice.com M-I-N-D-S. We want to say thanks to MHC Choice for sponsoring the show. Remember, when you support our sponsors, you support this podcast. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Tai Toshiro. Thanks for having me on. So your book is about awkwardness. And the first question I have to ask is, how do we define awkwardness? I mean, what are you really talking about here? Uh, sure. Well, there's, there's a lot of different ways to define awkwardness. I think one of the most helpful ways to think about it is to go back to the Old Norse roots of the word awkward. And it actually means facing a different direction or if you're a little more pessimistic, facing the wrong direction. And I think that's really helpful to think about why we're awkward and how we get ourselves into awkward situations. Because oftentimes it's that we miss a social cue or we miss a social expectation that everybody else sees. And that leads us down this path where we deviate just a little bit from what's socially expected. And that's all it takes actually to have an awkward moment. Now, there's also awkward people. And awkward people, interestingly enough, tend to see the world a little bit differently than non-awkward people. And they tend to to see the world in a more sharply focused, um, intense kind of way. That leads to some social social faux pas at times, but there's also some upsides to that as well. 
So let's just say, um, I want st- to stick with this idea of sort of missing a social cue for a minute, and then we'll get to people who are just chronically awkward. <laughs> sure, right. um, but, you know, we, we've all had these embarrassing moments where, you know, yeah, we, we mishear something or we misinterpret or we go a little too far with a joke uh, and all of a sudden things kind of fall flat. Is there any kind of objective way that we can measure whether something is awkward? I mean, that sounds <laughs> kind of silly, but I mean, is there a, are there kind of... Because, of course, not everything, some some things when they're intentionally socially tabooed, that's not awkward. It's just, you know, mean or insensitive. So how do we how do we draw the line between something that is awkward versus something that is, you know, just insensitive? The line is a little bit hard to draw, actually. And the way we usually recognize an awkward moment, whether we've committed it or somebody else is being awkward is actually usually emotional first. So it's not this thought of, oh, this is for sure what's going on. Um, Awkward emotions, awkward feelings tend to come up in social situations where we're not quite sure actually what's gone wrong. We know something's not quite right, um, but a lot of times we're, we're not exactly sure what's happened or why it's happened and even how to remedy the situation then. And that's why so many times when we have that racing heart and the flushed face and we feel super awkward when we try to remedy the situation sometimes we just make it worse which leads to this comedy of errors but we're not thinking clearly we don't know exactly what's wrong yet and so action tends to be a little haste in awkward moments so this is sort of, you know, we're talking about being embarrassed, too, which I assume is the sort of emotional consequence of an awkward moment. Are there ways in which we get embarrassed that don't include awkwardness? Or, you know, does the Venn diagram of those two things overlap entirely? Yeah, I think embarrassment is probably the best, best accompanying emotion to awkward moments, because they're, they're small social slights, right? They're, they're minor deviations from small social expectations. If we do something worse, you know, if we really, really hurt somebody's feelings or we did something mean, uh, unless you're a sociopath, then you probably feel guilty about the situation, which is a more intense kind of negative emotion. But feeling embarrassed is actually a really helpful thing. And sometimes when people have an awkward moment or do something that's awkward, they get that flushed face. And Sometimes we think to ourselves, well, now this just got even more awkward (laughs) because everybody can see that I feel embarrassed about the situation. Uh, But there's actually some really neat studies about embarrassment. And what they find in these uh, social psychology studies is that participants who blush after minor social slights are much more well-liked than participants who don't blush. And uh, people who are making these judgments are actually more likely to say, I'd like to spend time with that person. I'd like to be friends with that person. And are more likely to forgive whatever minor deviation occurred. I almost wonder if it even goes in, in the opposite direction where, you know, if you're I, sort of, <laughs> I have this uh, I, idea when I'm first in front of a class of students, uh, you know, teaching at a, at a university, and that, you know, sometimes I found in the past that just the way, you know, the way I talk and some be a little intimidating. So I tried to insert a few kind of mistakes, uh, not factual ones, but just kind of little things in the first lecture uh, that makes me seem more human and thereby more likable. Yeah, Um, that's a great idea. 
but you know they're not entirely intentional but it's sort of the thing where like you know if I do uh you know make a misstep I'll call it out as opposed to you know trying to brush it under the rug so um it made me wonder whether in these social situations that actually is a tool that people can use to you know generate kind of a bonding uh you know where the other person now is in a position to forgive and and kind of you know get closer yeah i i I do think that's true and you hit on a good point which is you're not artificially generating these mistakes they're just (laughs) genuine mistakes that happen right uh during the course of a first day of class but you're more likely to verbalize oh you know well that's embarrassing or i can't believe i did that and that does make you more approachable and relatable i've actually had that experience since i started writing this book uh, sometimes people would find out I'm writing a book about social awkwardness and this thought that I'm cool with awkward people <laughs> kind of liberated them to just suddenly talk about whatever social anxieties or social uncertainties were going on in the interaction. So I've actually had much more, uh, many more cases where people will say, are we going to hug or are we going to shake hands when we say goodbye? you know, for strangers. And I think that's actually, it's kind of funny. And it's really nice because yeah, sometimes you don't know. And then one person goes for the shake and gets your hand crumpled in the other person's abdomen. and It's awkward. So I, I think it's fine to just be more fluid about talking about how naturally uncertain and sometimes awkward everyday interactions can be. So let's then talk about uh, this label of awkward people. Um, you know, is that, that's I don't think that's in the DSM just yet. Uh, <laughs> but what is, in your uh, view, what warrants the kind of diagnosis of chronic awkwardness? <laughs> right. Well, it's it's not in the DSM, and I, I think sometimes that's a relevant discussion. Though maybe we could start with the DSM. So, uh, you know, autism is diagnosed for one in eighty-eight kids now, and. Almost every epidemiologist will tell you that's a tremendously overdiagnosed condition. Um, the when careful studies are done and they look at the true rate of autism in the general population, you're talking about more like one in 130 people. So that, that's a pretty high rate of overdiagnosis. But I think a lot of times people have social problems and maybe they're anxious about those or it's leading to troubles making social connections and clinicians looking for a label sometimes i think squeeze them into the asperger's or high functioning autism category which i don't think that's really that helpful uh, because the reality is is that uh, social skill deficits are normally distributed around a bell curve in the general population and so that means that the average person in the population has a few things that are kind of awkward, right? So they have some communication difficulties or some social skill deficits that consistently get in the way. Um, Now, it's not to the point that it's causing any kind of trouble, but when you're the kind of person who's maybe, let's say, at the 80th percentile or the 85th percentile of social skill uh, difficulties, well, now, now it's probably something on a daily basis you're having some difficulty connecting with them, have difficulty navigating fairly routine social situations. And it's not the end of the world, but it's just nice to acknowledge it as like a syndrome that you might have. 
and then think about, hey, how can I understand this? And then how can I take steps to improve these situations? So what do we know about the development of awkwardness? Is it just kids that don't learn the social cues the way they might, you know, uh, another child might be delayed in reading or other skills? Or is it something that happens uh, during puberty when, you know, there's hormones going sort of how, how do we develop awkwardness? Right? Yeah. Well, you know, we all get awkward in junior high. You know, that's, that's, that's for sure. That's kind of peak awkwardness for most people. But if you're an awkward individual, most awkward people will tell you that they can remember being awkward for as long as they can remember. And in fact, if you look at developmental psychology studies, what you see is as early as two or three years old, there's differences in social observation behaviors and also the way they interact with people. It's just a little bit different than other kids. Um, one example of this is what they call joint attention. And so there's something that parents will do with their kids before their kids can speak where they'll they'll look at another person or they'll look at the door and the child will follow their gaze and this is what they call joint attention so somebody signals that there's something to pay attention to and the kid then you know follows and looks in the same place the kids who end up being awkward actually don't do that as often as other kids so here's this tiny little social cue that Hey, I think somebody's at the door, for example, and so I'm looking at the door. Uh, but awkward kids won't look at the door uh, while other kids will. So you see all kinds of little behaviors like this where, you know, it's starting to manifest pretty early in childhood. And that can lead to kids getting behind in their social skills. It doesn't mean that it's irrecoverable, but they do get a little bit behind until there's some remedial efforts to backfill some of these social skills. Is that because they don't have as many opportunities to <clears throat> sort of learn those cues. I mean, I think about a, a kid who is awkward in second grade who just doesn't have as many friends and maybe gets made fun of because, you know, he's not able to participate in, in the social activities in a seamless way. Um, is, is that is it about practice or is it that, you know, there is something about how they view the world that continues to remain different? You know, it's, it's a little bit of both. Like a lot of psychological characteristics, there's um, some biological predisposition. So that could be uh, picking up on these social cues. It could be making eye contact, for example. Awkward kids don't make as much eye contact, so they don't get as much practice inferring emotion from people's um, eyes. But uh, you're right. Then that also means that maybe uh, they have fewer social interactions or have fewer opportunities to practice. Uh, awkward kids also, a certain subset of them have an aloofness where they just don't need to interact as often or they're just not as interested. And so parents will say, gosh, I'm concerned about my kid. They don't seem to have as much natural desire to interact with others. And yeah, that would be one of the characteristics. But awkward kids want to get along. You know, they want to have friends and they, they want to fit in and they want to be a good participant. It's just sometimes they have a hard time doing so. And, you know, that kind of makes me uh, you know, it, it makes me feel uh, sad. I mean, I was I was a relatively awkward kid. I don't I don't know exactly. I mean, I wasn't 
entirely awkward, but I was pretty awkward. And, you know, those embarrassing moments that I have still to me to this day are some of the most aversive emotional experiences in my life, sort of acutely, right? So an awkward moment uh, will haunt me in my dreams, you know, for days in that with that sinking feeling. Um, the way other strong emotions, whether it was fear or even, you know, sadness, you know, don't, uh, it, you know, haunt me. And so it makes me wonder, like, what is that? You know, why? It just seems like it would my life would be so much easier if I didn't have to, you know, relive those embarrassing moments with such intensity. And so that brings me to this question of, you know, what usefulness does this strong emotional reaction, which presumably, you know, was selected for at some point, maybe, uh, in our sort of world as humans? Yeah, they they are stubborn memories, aren't they? Uh, awkward awkward moments, and the they're all they remind me a little bit of memories that are triggered by olfaction. Sometimes you smell a certain you know place or a, a certain scent, and you're like, wow, a really powerful flood of memories will come back. Awkward moments sometimes operate in that same kind of flashbulb memory way, and as inconvenient as it is, and as um, seamlessly needless as it is for the anxiety it generates in us, it's adaptive because we shouldn't forget it, right? So if we did something that could jeopardize our ability to belong to a social group, uh, it would be good for us to have a selective memory for that behavior or that situation so that we could avoid it in the future. You know, for most of, most of human history, of course, we were in really small social groups, uh, less than 50 people and hunter-gatherer groups. And it was really important to be extremely attuned to other people and to cooperating with folks just to be able to eat and find water and, and have shelter. So we're, we're very attentive to small social cues. And if you're an awkward person who is prone to deviating from these a little bit more than the average person, and it's actually good, unfortunately, to remember some of these things because it keeps us from doing it again. And I would imagine that in some cultures uh, where the rules are more complicated or they're harder to learn or understand because maybe they're more subtle, uh, that this can be a bigger issue. Uh, have you found that in your research, that there are certain cultures in which awkwardness is a much bigger deal or cultures in which, you know, there isn't uh, such so many social faux pas that people can get embarrassed by? Yeah, I, that's, a, that's a great question. And I dug and dug for studies that would look at that with some kind of precision. It turns out that there haven't been probably enough studies that are precise enough to pick up on those differences. I, my hypothesis would be they're there, that there is cultural variability in how often uh, awkwardness manifests in a given culture. I think more laid back cultures would probably have lower rates of awkwardness. Uh, I'm Japanese American. I'm, I'm thinking to some of Japanese culture where there's a lot of unspoken things that happen. And there's these very subtle cues, whether they're verbal or nonverbal or based on context. I, I think that would be very challenging uh, if you had an awkward disposition to try to navigate those really subtle cues. 
And of course, it also uh, can be incorporated into some class distinctions in various ways. So, you know, you, you spend uh, quite a bit of time talking about manners and millennials, which mm. <laughs> I want to get to. Um, but it reminded me of this uh, saying that some people have, which is, you know, it's, it's called the good chap theory, where a good chap doesn't tell a good chap what a good chap ought to know, right? So, <laughs> right. you know, you don't point out to someone else that they just made a social faux pas <laughs> if you yourself have manners. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. Um, but that in, in that immediately labels that person as not a good chap, right? So right, it, right. It, it, there is an exclusionary uh, side to it. Um, so you know, what, <laughs> uh, yeah, what I mean is is the good chap theory something that uh, would help individuals who are chronically awkward, or does it hurt because those social cues are even more difficult to decipher? Right. I guess there's two ways to look at the good chap uh, theory, right? So one would be if you're an awkward person, you should definitely adhere to that because <laughs> awkward people tend to be overly blunt. That's that's one of the characteristics that they have. And, you know, awkward people tend to see the world in a really matter of fact kind of way. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that means that sometimes they'll vocalize things that are better left unsaid, <laughs> you know, so, uh, so someone said that their a teenager uh, who w was pretty awkward just had a way of pointing out that people's acne had gotten worse or, you know, that they had, uh, their voice was cracking. And it's like, yes, those things are true. Those are not false statements, but you probably shouldn't say that to your peers. <laughs> you know, that's, that, that would probably help you get along a little bit better. I think the other way to look at, though, is if an awkward person has done something that's awkward, right? I actually think in a kind and gentle way, it is helpful to point it out sometimes. And it's like anything else that you point out that's negative. You you can't do it all the time. But, you know, if you, if you notice somebody who is a good friend of yours or you know that's awkward is doing something that's getting them into a little bit of social trouble or rubbing people the wrong way. I've actually found that awkward people are remarkably receptive to hearing that feedback. And they'll usually say, oh, no, I, I didn't even know, you know, that that was that, that wasn't the way to do it. And they're, they're glad then to be able to to fix it. So, you know, awkward people will oftentimes search the Internet to try to find solutions to how to better navigate the social world or read books or you know, they're really hungry to figure things out. Some of this direct feedback it can actually be really helpful when it's said in a nice way. And so you also talked at the top of the interview about um, the narrowing of focus that seems to be uh, characterizing people who are chronically awkward. So let's explore that a little bit. What do you mean by their focus is narrow? There's an analogy, actually, that's helpful to think about this. So imagine that you see life unfold on a stage. And that stage is fully illuminated. So, you know, all the lights are on. You can see people coming and going. Most of your attention would probably go center stage because that's where many of the key interactions would take place. But you can also look around and gather social context. And that's how most people see the social world. Awkward people, by comparison, tend to see their stage spotlighted. And that spotlight falls just a little bit left of center. By thought experiment. So this means that they see part of the stage in brilliant detail with great clarity and great focus. 
but they're also more likely to miss out on social cues that are occurring center stage that everybody else is picking up on, or they're more likely to miss out on some contextual cues from other corners of the stage. And this actually helps to explain a lot of the social science research uh, that tells us that awkward people just see the world a little bit differently. And so the positive consequence, perhaps, of this narrowing of focus, which, you know, at least anecdotally might explain why there are higher percentages of awkward people in certain very technical fields, um, might give someone an advantage, right? If you're if you're really uh, focused on something, you will learn more about that thing. And, you know, unfortunately, it might not include all these other social cues, but it will make you it could make you a better engineer or, you know, a better scientist or a better artist uh, in a way. And often we do see that, you know, people who work in these fields that, that require a, a lot of work on their own, not so much with the team, maybe there's a higher propensity of people who are awkward. Is that is there any data to back up that idea? There is data to, to back up that assertion. And it's pretty clean, actually, surprisingly clean for social science data. And you see these big group differences based on people's vocational interests or the field that they went into. So, uh, you know, mathematicians tend to be more awkward. Uh, people in the sciences uh, tend to be more awkward, computer science, engineering. But the thing that all of these fields have in common is that they require a systematic approach. So there's methods in science or there's, uh, you know, an order of operations in mathematics. It's, there's a very systematic way to take the little pieces and to make sense of them. And oftentimes it requires, like you said, a bit of solitary effort to, and some patience to, and persistence to push through some of these things. And so, yeah, that would be really adaptive if you had the spotlighted focus and you could move one piece of information at a time, really understand each piece with a lot of clarity, and then put everything together. So awkward people like to, they, they tend to like to problem solve in a bottom-up kind of way. So they'll, uh, an example I give is I have this friend and he said that he'd always take the toaster apart at, at his, at his house when he was a kid and his parents would walk in and be like, Oh no, you took the toaster apart again. But it wasn't good enough for him to know that this box made toast. He had to disassemble it, understand the various parts and then figure out, see with his own eyes how they got put back together to create this mechanism. And awkward people so oftentimes do that, whether that's in work, but even in their leisure life, you know, if they're collecting uh, comics or uh, a fan of Game of Thrones or whatever it might be, you oftentimes see this very systematic approach to appreciating it. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Game of Thrones because, you know, sometimes uh, we think that people then who study the humanities are less awkward uh, compared with, you know, a mathematician, for example. But all of the, you know, visual artists, uh, a lot of the musicians uh, and a lot of the full time writers that I know are pretty high on the awkward scale. <laughs> yeah, um, writers are super awkward. I can... <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, you know, and. Yeah, so so it it made and I think it you know does go along with this sort of systematic idea because in each of those fields whether you know if you're learning to play the violin you really have to go through a rigorous systematic training, uh, if you're learning to be a visual artist you know same thing you have to learn your skills and 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 same thing as a writer you're doing a lot of things on your own, but do you think that this is people's 
like which is the chicken and which is the egg? Is it that their interests then lead them to this narrow focus, or is it the fact that you know they're not really good at the subtle social things that and they're a little isolated that pushes them to to uh, pursue careers that are more uh, so, you know that that rely more on them being alone? Yeah, I, I think the evidence suggests that the the narrow spotlighted focus comes first, and then that leads them to select into fields that will reward a more systematic approach. And if you look at kids who, yeah, so kids, you can see it pretty early, right? So you see, ah, oh, this kid's a little bit awkward. That's that's okay. But if you if you watch them play or you watch how they do things, they're actually remarkably systematic in how they go about it, almost adult-like in how they go about it sometimes. And uh, yeah, so that that I think that manifests first and then gets you into the area of interest. But you know, that's an okay trajectory because a lot of kids find other kids like them who are interested in the same kinds of things and like to be passionate about the same things. A little bit splitting, a little bit lonely sometimes. And, you know, as you mentioned, one of the most awkward times in our life is adolescence, uh, as we're, you know, bombarded with all kinds of emotions. And, you know, there's just a huge shift in terms of our interactions with other people as, as we go through puberty. Um, and so are there things that can be done in those years that are more likely to teach a person the social cues? Or do you feel like, you know, if if there's there's already something, you know, genetic or some predisposition or already by the time that you get there that, you know, you've had this narrow focus um, where there isn't a lot that that a person could do to change that. And and the reason I ask this is because I often think like if I had spent more time going to parties as opposed to studying in high school you know, would I be much cooler (laughs) and less awkward? Right. Um, You know, or was it just like, it was never going to be my destiny because I just didn't, you know, parties just didn't interest me. Yeah, right, right. And maybe you would have gone and been miserable anyways, right? I know I felt that way sometimes, but um, no, there are things that can be done, whether it's the awkward person or parents or teachers or, or whoever. And that can happen in adulthood, but it can also happen pretty early on. I can give you an example of this. When I was, you know, I guess just before junior high, probably around fifth or sixth grade, uh, my my parents started to think this is might not go well for Ty, you know, (laughs) junior high, because he's struggling a bit. And some of that mercy that you get in grade school, it it goes away in, in junior high. And so they kind of this remedial crash course for me in social skills. And I hated it at the time. I'm sure I was not pleasant <laughs> about, about these things, but I'm really grateful for it now. And, you know, before we go into social situations, we had these things they called mental preparation. So they even branded it with something. And what we would do is we'd usually sit in the car and they would take me through a Socratic dialogue about, hey, what are the social things going to be here? And what do you need to do to make sure that you're well-mannered and making other people feel at ease? And so if we were going into, let's say, Wendy's to get some lunch, they would say things like, what's going to be the first thing you need to look for when we get inside the restaurant? And to me, even though I had gone through this dozens of times, it was as if I'd heard the question for the first time. <laughs> and so I, 
I say, oh, yeah, well, I, I guess I should see if there's a line. Uh, right. So now you get to the back of the line. What do you need to do? I guess I should figure out what it is I'm going to order. Right. And get money ready. And, but all of this, you know, most kids, what they would do is they would just naturally do all these things. For me, it, it was really effortful. And I needed these reminders about how I was going to navigate the situation. And then once I got into the situation and I did all these things and it went well, then it was reinforcing. And so over time, I started to see that, you know what, Ty, you got to do this on your own. And you got to think ahead of time sometimes about how you're going to navigate these social situations. It's just going to help things go a lot better. Do you think that's one of the reasons why you ended up being a psychologist that's that, you know, specializes on interpersonal relationships? I mean, you kind of developed an expertise <laughs> right, uh, in, yeah. in that time. Who knows? You know, <laughs> uh, we're bad diagnosing ourselves, I guess. And uh, I I feel grateful, certainly, to be doing what I'm doing. And it's, it's interesting to me. I um, I guess I had some friends in psychology who went in and there was some moment in their life or some experience or something they had lived with that made them want to want them to understand it in more depth. You know, I, I think I ended up liking psychology and liking interpersonal relationships because it just fascinated me that you could find order in something that for most of my life had struck me as totally chaotic <laughs> and that there were predictable things that occurred. And that if people knew this, they could actually use that information um, to understand situations better, understand other people better, um, and sometimes improve improve their relationships. I think that's what I like about it. And, and my awkward disposition, I guess, it it really makes me enjoy the process of having these big questions and then going into the research literature and combing through hundreds of studies and trying to organize that data statistically or mathematically in a way that makes sense and then also organize it conceptually in a way that would make sense to a, a broader audience. Yeah, I would think that would make you extremely qualified <laughs> to do your job. <laughs> it's, uh, um, you but, know, it's, it's takes, sometimes, you know, you wonder, you're like, oh, why, why am I, you're in the library and it's late at night and you're like, why am I doing this? But that's exactly, for me, that's exactly what I love. You know, I, I just love the idea of the hunt and being investigative and seeing pieces fall into place. Um, it's a it's a gratifying sort of thing for me. So I wanted uh, to get back to this idea of millennials and manners. Um, but to set this up, I wanted to first ask you about something that I've noticed uh, in the last decade or so, that it seems to have gotten more cool to be a nerd, uh, which was certainly not the case <laughs> when I was yeah. growing up. I wish it would have been, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so all, it almost feels as though being awkward is now, you know, the new cool, uh, in a, you know, especially here in Silicon Valley, you know, where, where I live, uh, and there's the whole startup culture and um, you know, there's a lot of awkwardness going yeah. on and it's celebrated uh, for what yeah. it is. I mean, it's like, you know, that's yeah, that means you're going to be the next, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg because you're super awkward. <laughs> um, so is is there really a, a fundamental shift in terms of the acceptance of awkwardness and therefore maybe even people who are intentionally being awkward? I do think so. And I don't know of any, you know, big polls or surveys that have asked people whether awkwardness is cool now <laughs> or not, but 
I think just yeah, from observation, social observation, that has happened. And I think that's that's a great thing. Like I said, I would have been nice if it was uh, trending back maybe when we were in school. But, um, you know, when I was in high school, if you were called in, that's the thing to be called. <laughs> you could be called a lot of other things, but that's kind of the social kiss of death. But now, yeah, you'll see people just call themselves awkward on social media or embrace it. I, I think you're right, too. Sometimes people intentionally do things that are kind of faux awkward, right, at times. So in fashion here in New York, you see that sometimes where people will intentionally dress in a nerdy kind of way, and that's actually kind of chic now. Um, but I, I think beyond the more surface ends of things, I think there's actually been a good movement. Maybe the Internet was part of that where it allowed people with kind of fringe interests or interests that are a little bit unusual to find each other and to go into chat rooms or to go on social media and kind of just fully be themselves and fully embrace and enjoy what it is that they love. And that's been an amazing thing, I think, for uh, nerdy or or awkward people. I think also there's been the um, pop culture part of it. I mean, the Big Bang Theory, I think, is the number two show in the United States. Uh, Silicon Valley is another great show on HBO. Um, There's a bunch of different things happening in pop culture where it's like, hey, you know, it's it's not the worst thing in the world to be awkward. But, you know, I was, I was thinking about this the other day. A lot of those shows do such a great job because they they don't make fun of people who are awkward. They're not mocking people that are awkward, you know, because that would get mean and I don't think people would watch. Um, what the shows do is they say, hey, here's somebody who is well-intended and who has a good heart, but... <laughs> They're just tripping quite a bit as they're trying to navigate social life. So that brings me to this uh, kind of surprising thing that you described uh, in the book about how millennials really seem to be very interested in learning better manners. Um, so, so tell me, tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the, the broader surveys um, say that about three quarters of people in the United States across all age groups think that manners have declined. So, you know, we think we're much more ill-mannered than we used to be. People say they're not happy about it. But, um, you know, the explanations for that, uh, it's hard to find a good explanation. No one really knows for sure why manners have been in decline. But uh, millennials seem to have a sense of this. And they grew up in an era that was more casual as far as parenting goes. I, I don't think that's a good or a bad thing. It's just what it was probably had some benefits as well, but, you know, they didn't acquire some of these social graces that other kids would have learned in other generations. And so then they get into their job or they, uh, you know, move and get to a big city or whatever it might be. And they realize that they you know, don't know how to dress for a certain occasion, or they don't know proper table manners at a certain kind of event. And they have the intuition to know that, uh, this isn't going well for me when I don't know these social graces. So there was a great article in the New York Times about uh, three years ago. And it was about these YouTube videos about manners. And the curious thing about this is that the demographic who watches these manners videos are millennials. <laughs> so they're, they're going in there before they go to an event and they're saying, hey, how, you know, do I wear a tie or do I not wear a tie? 
uh, which fork do I use? And all of these things that people used to think were such a pain when our parents or grandparents tried to instill these manners in this exactly the kinds of things that millennials are hungry for now. Well, that seems like a, a trend that I can get behind. <laughs> Since, uh, you know, you know, manners just make things more pleasant. Uh, and, you know, especially the ones that I kind of smooth over awkward situations. I mean, to me, it's getting back to the good chap theory. It's like the best manners are the ones in which everybody is made to feel in the room as if they're, you know, comfortable and, and you know, there aren't moments of embarrassment. Uh, even when they do something they shouldn't be doing, you know, it's the host's job to make sure that, you know, like, I love this, this, this et etiquette thing where, you know, you're supposed to obviously wait until everybody is sitting at the table before you lift your fork at dinner. But if any single person at the table does that before, you know, everyone's seated, then the thing to do is for everybody to start eating. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so that that person isn't, you know, there isn't a spotlight on them. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, that, that um, is true. It, yeah, manners, you know, I think sometimes manners get a bad rap because we, we have flashbacks to uh, someone who is an overly strict uh, person about manners when we were a kid. But you're, you're right, you know, social graces and manners and etiquette at the core are about making people feel welcome, about showing respect, and about facilitating social interaction so that people can feel at ease. And uh, I, there's, there's certainly nothing wrong with that, you know? And um, I, I think even when people trip up sometimes on manners, then I, I love that story you tell about <laughs> someone digging right in when everybody doesn't have their food yet. And then everyone else being like, well, we're not going to embarrass this person, <laughs> right? By, uh, <laughs> yeah. by letting them do it by themselves. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great because it's saying, hey, well, we're going to try to work as a group here to, to get along and smooth things over. So any last words of advice for people who are listening, who are who are seeing their awkward selves uh, in you and your writing? I don't mean that you're awkward uh, now, but you seem to have <laughs> come well out of the other side of it. Well, sometimes, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, what, what do you want to leave uh, our listeners with? Well, you know, I, I guess I'd also say that there's an upside to this spotlighted focus. And, you know, that that is, is there's a certain area of the world or a certain part of life where awkward people tend to just be really passionate and they just love to nerd out over that aspect or, or that interest and they have a lot of persistence and they you know sometimes even have a, a bit of extra clarity about these things and a bit of extra focus and that can lead to a lot of good things uh, one of the good things it leads to is you know this idea of deliberate practice so being able to put in your however many hours this is debated now, but let's say your 10,000 hours of deliberate practice to really get good at something and to really find out as much as you can and to, to master something. Um, deliberate practice comes a little bit more easily, actually, to people with an awkward disposition. So uh, people just have to find their niche, though, and they have to find their place. And that can be a little bit more challenging sometimes for an awkward person. But if they're patient and if they keep faith, then oftentimes they end up getting there. And I want to remind our listeners that Ty's new book, Awkward, The Science of Why We're Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome, is available now at booksellers everywhere. Ty Tashiro, thank you for being on Inquiring Minds. Hey, thanks for having me. So I have to start out by asking, that was 
totally an enjoyable interview, especially for somebody that's a little bit socially awkward like me. But how much science is actually there for something like this? For, you know, it's not categorized in the DSM as you kind of came to. And it's sort of nascent in terms of how many people are actually studying this. Yeah, it's a good question. And I think that, you know, this book is written from the perspective of a lot of like narrative nonfiction books where there's a lot of stories and there's a lot of anecdata. (laughs) which is not actual data, but it refers to a, a number of studies. And I, th- I think that understanding the difference between being socially awkward and, say, being on the autism spectrum is a very new idea. And I think that it's one that's worth studying more because he points out that there are, you know, differences. Uh, you know, previously we had Sharon Begley on the show who talked about compulsions. And a lot of us have thought compulsions are just part of obsessive compulsive disorder. If you have a compulsion, you know, you must, uh, by definition, have OCD. And she pointed out, you know, she or at least she brought to a wider audience that that simply is not the case, um, that you can feel compelled to do something without having, you know, other kind of obsession, obsessive tendencies and, you know, certainly not fitting the diagnosis. So I think the same might be true here. And I think that, uh, you know, essentially what this book does is references uh, some of the work that's already been done, but more importantly, calls for more research to be put into this question, especially as, you know, look, this might be a phenomenon of our age as well, when we don't spend as much one-on-one time together as, you know, maybe a couple generations did ago. And yet there's a lot of etiquette now surrounding social media. So you're saying you're suggesting technology, our lifestyle that people work a whole lot more, and, you know, oftentimes work remotely, so they're not in the same place as the people that they're working with. That is potentially leading to more of this phenomenon emerging? Well, I don't know if it's so much... um, I mean, maybe it's more, more putting a, a lens on something that's already been there, but it's certainly true that we spend much less time uh, as communities, right? You know, pe- fewer people go to church, fewer people sort of meet in big communities where you are um, exposed to people that have very diverse, you know, interests. And I mean, I guess, you know, if you go to the same church, maybe your interests aren't that diverse, uh, but certainly a diverse, you know, usually a diverse set of people who maybe don't share, don't work in the same place, don't even have the same SES and so forth. And I think that, you know, these days, that seems to be less a part of everyday life and less a part of the lives of, of kids as they grow up, um, given that now they can spend more time online. Uh, you know, I, I don't know, I, I'm just speculating here. Well, I think we can all relate to this idea of of being socially awkward at some point in our life, or regularly in my case, but I, it begs the question that you brought up earlier, is it worth studying more? Like, what what's the potential gain for us by, like, delving a lot deeper into this area? That I'm not clear on. Well, I, I mean, I think, it, for one thing, it sort of makes a distinction between someone who's just you know, kind of uh, and interested in something, passionate about something that other people aren't necessarily interested in, which would be the definition of a nerd uh, in the past, uh, and someone who kind of eschews social, uh, you know, etiquette or what have you, either... I just call those they... people assholes, usually. <laughs> <laughs> well, but they're not, they're not always. I mean, sometimes they're just awkward. And the question is, is it because, like Ty, they have trouble... Uh, reading and understanding these rules that for most of us come, I don't know, I mean, I, I, I hate to say that it's like, you know, related to some kind of brain chemistry or, or wiring or whatever. I mean, it's experience, right? So, uh, but just for, for some reason, despite his parents' best efforts, uh, Ty's experience was that it was always very difficult for him to see these cues. So like, maybe he's kind of on the spectrum in some way. Um, but I think that that actually... Um, taking individuals who are like Ty uh, off of a sort of 
spectrum, uh, you know, and, and really looking at them for what they are and not pathologizing this kind of behavior, because although maybe it caused him some angst, uh, it's certainly, you know, he's certainly been very successful in life. Um, so I have to say when he commented about uh, people that have a little bit this awkwardness tend to be a little bit more blunt than than others. And, uh, and, and that is indicative of something that totally hit uh, on the nose for me, both in terms of how I've acted at certain points of my life and people I've interacted with. And so uh, I found it fascinating, and I'll probably pick up the book just purely because I can probably relate to so much of the anecdata inside. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that's the thing that I kind of liked about it. It sort of made me feel better about a lot of my social faux pas moments of the past where I thought, oh, maybe it wasn't my fault. Maybe it's just because I didn't pick up those rules for whatever reason. I wasn't paying attention or, you know, the way my brain is wired, whatever you want to say. Uh, but it kind of takes the onus or the pressure off a person for whom this is actually a difficult thing, um, you know, rather than always demonizing them. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Michael Galgul, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your most awkward moments, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari, awkwardly online at Science Quiche. See you next week. And once again, this week's episode is sponsored by MHC Choice, which features European mysteries, dramas, and comedies streamed right to your computer, TV, or favorite device. Try MHC Choice free for 30 days and save 50% off your first month when you visit mhcchoice.com minds and use code minds at checkout. That's mhcchoice.com m-i-n-d-s. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.